Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you all. This is the Business Day Spotlight, your destination for African business made simple. Uh, my name is Mdiwa Gavaza, and for today, we do look back um, at uh, Finance Minister Enoch Gondongwana's maiden full-year budget speech that he delivered on Wednesday. Too much fanfare, um, a lot of people calling it a good news budget, and uh, he himself was uh, taking time to highlight all of the places along the way where, you know, things had been revised in a, in a sense that would actually end up being positive. Um, going along the way, talking about uh, state-owned enterprises, the state of the economy, revisions to growth estimates, what needs to be done in terms of social spending, um, and then all of the different places that they're trying to put up, um, you know, employment, uh, such as public infrastructure, all of these different things that the minister spoke about um, on the day. So for today, we're going to be just getting into a review you know of that budget speech and uh, to help us to just delve deeper into it we're joined by two you know two experts very learned individuals that have been with us uh, on a number of occasions just to get into that discussion we're joined by annabelle bishop who is uh, the chief economist over at investec and then we're also joined by darvi root who is the chief economist at uh, efficient group to give us uh, their insights just into everything that has happened along the way. Annabelle, I think uh, maybe we can begin with you, both of you, in fact, um, just getting, um, you know, your thoughts around, you know, what stuck out to you um, when it came to, you know, the budget speech. I think on my end, just because I cover technology, media and telecoms companies, I noted that despite all the noise that's been made about uh, Spectrum and digital migration, etc., the finance minister didn't say anything whatsoever about either one of the two things, even though the president did spend some time talking about it in his uh, State of the Nation address, I found that was something that stuck out to me. So maybe I'll just invite the two of you to give us what stuck out to you. Uh, Annabelle, just starting with you. Thank you very much. Yes, I think you're completely correct. We immediately hone in on the thing that's of particular interest to us. And for me, that was obviously what the credit ratings and financial markets would think of the budget. And of course, you know, we saw this lowering of the debt projection now down to 75% for a peaking. That obviously is very positive. Um, if you do a comparison, perhaps to, um, you know, the medium term budget policy statement, that was um, provided quite a shock to the markets in the um, 2020 year. I don't know if you recall um, that the peaking of the debt then was about, expected to be about 85%. So obviously, because of that, um, adding in the state-owned entities debt, it would have taken you over 100. And that's the point, you know, the, the credit rating agencies do add in the state-owned entities debt. So for me, that, that stood out, the drop down to 75%. And I believe the budget is essentially credit neutral as a consequence. Yes, we may see Moody's take us off the negative outlook. But the reason why I'm not looking for a credit rating upgrade from this is that we're sitting at double B minus at the moment. And um, our debt levels, obviously, gross debt percentage of GDP at 70%, potentially rising to 70%. 75%, but then coming off again, the, the budget showed us yesterday, to back to the 70 mark by 2029-30. 
I think it'd be a bit rich, you know, if they did um, downgrade us as a consequence because of that. So it looks like it's fairly credit neutral, credit flat. But where it is positive is that we're going to see probably lower issuance from a debt perspective. They're, they're indicating the lowering and the borrowing requirement. And that's quite positive for our bond yields. But overall, I'd say the fact we didn't see much market reaction, much um, currency reaction indeed, even, is very much because of this uh, Ukraine-Russian tension that's really taking off in Eastern Europe now. You know, they obviously are escalating to the point of likely going into a war. And of course, that's creating great concern for risk assets, you know, whether it's obviously oil prices, <laughs> and particularly seeing a quite, quite a hard hit, but also, of course, as well, the RAND, other, other, other prices as well. So you know, in a nutshell, that obviously was um, what really grabbed my attention. But of course, there are many other points as well we could talk about. No, certainly. And it is, a, it is quite an interesting one to see how other market players, you know, are going to be, you know, looking at this. It seemed, you know, that for the better part of this decade, the ratings agencies would sort of take these, you know, give government benefit of the doubt and not say anything. Then we sort of got into, you know, just a, a cycle uh, over a very short period of time where it was downgrade after downgrade. Um, so, um, Davi, your take just around, you know, what stood out to you, your points of interest uh, in the whole uh, budget speech? First of all, I think the Minister of Finance, he, he was quite, had a lot of self-confidence. I think the speech was well, well delivered. Uh, I also broadly agree with his estimates and what he's trying to achieve. So I think that is quite achievable. Uh, but there are two things that I think are important. Annabelle just mentioned now that uh, we had previously, we thought that the debt is going to go to 85%, now suddenly it's going to go to 75% because of the recent, especially the overrun of revenue recently. But similarly, something could go wrong over the next year or two and it can move it back to 85% again. So the point I'm trying to make was although all these numbers are certainly achievable, and I want to unpack one or two of those numbers for a moment, but these numbers are mostly achievable, and it, it, I think it's not unrealistic to do that. We have to understand is that if the fiscal accounts are still in very, very deep trouble, and if something goes wrong somewhere, then all of a sudden everything is going to go wrong. So we have to understand that things be not out of the woods yet when it comes to the fiscal accounts. And then something that, that I'm very, very concerned about, and that is that we have a Minister of Finance and he's predicting economic growth around about 2% for the next couple of years. Um, in fact, below 2%. Uh, now, we have a Minister of Finance that's telling us that the economy is going to grow at least than 2% for the next couple of years. And my goodness gracious, if the Minister of Finance has uh, very little trust in South Africa's economic prospects, why should anybody else want to invest in South Africa? And he's trying to, and that's the reality, and I agree with him again, that is probably what's going to happen in South Africa, but if we're not going to grow this economy, uh, then unemployment will remain high, the, the number of people on the grants will, will stay where it is currently, running at close to 30 million people, and I can't see how we're going to get off that. So that is my biggest concern, is that it's business as usual, the numbers are realistic, I don't disagree much with the numbers of the Minister of Finance, but that is the problem, we cannot go on um, uh, as what we have been going on the last couple of years because the economy is not growing fast enough and poverty will remain an issue and unemployment will remain high and so on. So that is my biggest concern. It's business as usual, but business as usual is simply not good enough. Mm. No, no, it certainly, you know, it certainly, you know, doesn't sound like it, uh, that it's promising because, um, you know, to your point, a lot of market players will take the tone 
you know, that uh, someone like the finance minister says, and wherever they can, they will read in between the lines to be like, okay, he seems very confident, but the substance of what this man is actually saying, you know, is this, um, you know, so going forward, it will be interesting to see, uh, you know, how people, you know, take some of those uh, projections, uh, you know, into effect. Maybe just as a quick follow up, Davi, you did mention that you wanted to, you know, maybe unpack one or two of those uh, numbers. Uh, maybe you can, you know, just take that. Yeah, you know, I think part of the reason why some people call this a good news budget is because we haven't seen significant changes to the major taxes. A couple of taxes that go up. And I must tell you, I'm very surprised. You see that the fuel levy is not going up and the road accident fund is also not going up. But just keep in mind that with the road accident fund is that there's a huge actuarial deficit already in the road accident fund and not increasing the road accident fund levy doesn't mean that we're not incurring or actually accumulating debt somewhere else. We are. But that was a big, really a big surprise to me. And I think people are calling this a good news budget because taxes didn't go up. But I can guarantee you is that if the state keeps on spending like this, then taxes will go up sometime in future. Uh, so although even though it's significant changes to taxes, it doesn't mean that we're not going to see tax increases going forward. And then I did mention the grants, and that is something uh, that and I've been beating this drum for some time now. We have, let's call it 19 million people receiving the various grants. We've got 10 and a half million people receiving the special COVID grant, which means that we have 30 million people receiving the grants. And we have 2 million civil servants in South Africa, if you include the state on enterprises and local authorities and so on. The minister is planning to increase their wages below the inflation rate. And the minister told us that that 10 million grant recipients will, will stop receiving a grant next year. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. I think they, it will become a permanent feature. And I think something like a basic income grant will be the result of all of that. Something similar, similar to the basic uh, income ground. But if he, if he is successful in reducing the wage bill, and if he is successful in taking 10 million people off the grounds, because that is the plan at the moment, then I'm afraid it will lead to huge social and polit political tension in South Africa if he will really want to make people angry, take away their money. And we saw what happened last year in KZN and Gauteng, and I'm very concerned about something similar happening in South Africa. So those are two things that I just want to highlight as well. Yeah, no, certainly, and especially um, on that last part, because I think a lot has been said about the violence that happened last year, you know, and any situation that might exacerbate tensions, um, whether in those same two provinces or in other parts of the country, if not the whole country, you know, is yeah. a very big risk um, that uh, government needs to be cognizant of. Let me just give you another set of numbers. Yes. That we have 14 million people employed in South Africa and 2 million of them are civil servants. So that, that means that we have got 12 million people in South Africa that work in the private, work in the productive sector. Or let me give another number. Uh, for every one person with a job in South Africa, there are two people receiving a grant. Uh, this, is just, this is just something that's not sustainable. So we cannot go on like this, but we also cannot stop doing this because of our levels of poverty and unemployment. So that's why political leaders, strong political leadership is so important now. No, 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 certainly. And it would be great to see how that uh, discussion and especially the tension that exists between, exactly. you know, the social spending, but at the same time, fiscal responsibility um, is going to need to, you know, develop over time. Um, you know, Annabelle, your take just around the, the so-called good news budget, 
you know, is it really good news or do you sort of follow um, Davi to say that, you know, what sounds great on the surface uh, deep down might not be so great down the line? in whatever aspects you're watching. Yes, thanks. Uh, no, I don't disagree with Darby. What, what I'd add to it, um, you know, where I have a divergence, what concerns me is that I follow the <laughs> um, reforms that are promised by government, that are planned, that are going to be implemented, and it takes me to a 3% GDP growth rate by 2026. Now, that's really how economists typically do their forecasts. You know, they look at um, what is planned, they obviously adjust it, but think, well, maybe if we plan all this infrastructure investment or um, renewable energy investment or you know whatever it is we're going to you know reach a certain growth rate but then I might adjust a bit lower because I might think it'll take a bit slower etc cetera, etc cetera. and I get to about 2.9 percent for um, 2026 but obviously 2.5 percent by 2024 now I worry intensely that <laughs> government doesn't believe itself it's got you know <laughs> it's, it's got to drop down to one and a half percent by 2024 so, so I'm worried I'm worried that I must maybe not believe <laughs> their, their plans and views or their implementations or is there something else down the line we don't know. I mean, jokes aside, it's very concerning because you see, when I, you know, lower my debt to GDP ratios, fiscal uh, forecasts, uh, you know, it's, it's based on that quickening of growth and revenue. And of course, if we don't have that, government's revenue figures might actually prove to be too optimistic. In fact, you know, I wonder a bit about their slowing GDP growth forecasts and their quickening revenue collection projections. But anyway, uh, you know, returning to some of the key points at hand, you know, I, I'm very much of the opinion, and you know, it may not be intensely popular, but in some circumstances, that we do need some form of basic income grant in South Africa, but that it needs to be intelligently or, or correctly implemented. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of work done in the, by the World Bank, for example, where they look at a job seekers grant. And that just enables people to have a bit of money so that they are able to go to um, places where they could potentially find employment. So, so if they were to perhaps make a permanent 350 Rand job seekers grant, people could prove or show that they've been trying to find work and employment. The World Bank has shown that that has been very successful. But I think as well, you know, in South Africa, we do have many, many people who would like to work but have given up or people who don't have the skills and the training. So I would say the problem is, is, is much broader than that. And again, it's a bit like the corporate tax um, cut you know again you know you, you drop from 20 28 27 percent but it doesn't solve the problem on its own and and no a basic income grant i don't think is going to solve the problem either you know what we need to have the corporate income uh, tax cut uh, providing a stimulatory effect on the economy is obviously if we improve all the other areas that businesses need as well to have a strong enabling environment to do business like as you recall in the tabo and becky years when we obviously had very good governance and obviously a strong regulatory environment that was supportive of businesses as opposed to the one that is so burdensome now it actually impedes business activity but you know returning to the basic income grant we also need as well people to be able to have proper um, resources to actually gain um, skills that are necessary to find formal employment. Because the reason I say this is, is that many surveys have shown that people don't want to have um, more welfare actually. I mean, they obviously need it, but the, 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 their goal in life is not to live permanently on, on welfare. They would actually prefer to have decent jobs for the, you know, where, where they could actually earn well for the dignity of themselves and their families. That, that is actually the preference for the vast majority of individuals. And again, perhaps that um, is something that many who argue against the uh, a form of, of additional welfare support maybe don't seek because they feel about make people lazy and not seek their jobs. So I think it's quite a rich debate. We could probably go on all day. But what I would say is that we probably need to 
see a strong improvement in South Africa's education systems. You know, we have um, many teachers that have been reported that just can't teach, that don't teach well, that their skills level is so abysmal and poor. We see the standards of education dropping and the pass rate lowering to try and get people through. And then they come out and they can't find jobs. It's, there's a strong link there. There's a reason why that is. They can't, they can't find jobs because they don't have the skills that are needed to match in the economy. And until, you know, government actually starts being stronger on some of the areas that really matter, which is obviously, you know, going to be a union debate, but getting the teachers skilled up to the levels where they can impart the knowledge that's required to make these individuals employable, we're going to continue to run into many of these problems. So I think, you know, that, that is my take on some of the, the, the factors that Darby mentioned. We need to drill down deeply into them and see it's no point in, in, in putting something in at a surface level. We need to actually make sure that all the other factors are in place as well to provide a supportive environment where we actually do see success for all South Africans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it, and it, what's called, it is quite, uh, you know, quite a cumbersome burden on the government that they have to be dealing with at the moment when one just thinks about uh, the state of the economy and the fact of, I think everyone talks about the state of jobless growth to say that, you know, we report growth numbers, even mm -hmm. if they are south of the projections that are there, there is some growth. And most of the time, it's not the jobs don't correlate with whatever growth we're seeing on that end. But I want to switch at the moment to touch on perhaps one of the biggest draws um, on the state. And I think it's important because obviously it's a big employer. At the same time, it's a big draw on government and funds. And that's something that um, in the past discussions with Annabelle, she's always, uh, you know, highlighted state-owned enterprises. Just getting your thoughts. This one is always, uh, you know, the a big contentious issue. Um, so just uh, starting with Annabelle, you know, your take on, um, you know, what's been earmarked at the moment. Is it anything new or, you know, relatively more of the same as far as you can see? I have seen a shift, a sentiment shift in the last few years, or maybe the last couple, few might be a bit much, of years from government really indicating that they'd like the state-owned entities to be self-sufficient. And I think that's quite key from an income generation perspective. I think there was a small amount of money um, put in as an, as an aid. I don't know if... if if we're going to see further big bailouts, I don't think so. Government's really looking to move away from them strongly. I think, you know, we, we probably would have hoped to see more from a debt restructuring perspective, um, certainly from failing debt as well. And I think, you know, from that perspective, we continue to believe, as you know, that the government should uh, take uh, the SOE debt onto its balance sheet. Uh, it has a, has a lower funding cost and then obviously um, will make no difference to the credit rating agencies because they already put it on our balance sheet as part of government debt. And then that would then obviously relieve the pressure on those SOEs. But that comes with a big risk. We don't want them to immediately run up a huge amount of debt instantly again and waste it, <laughs> or even worse, see it um, lost through corruption and theft and looting. And there would need to be checks and balances. And again, I think it goes back to that point I talked to you about earlier, where we need to have a supportive environment, an overall environment that is more um, workable, that is, you know, one which obviously puts all the necessary checks and balances in place, and not the one that we have at the moment. You know, there may be checks and balances in the place. It doesn't really help us whether someone gets a qualified or unqualified audit. You know, what we actually want is to know what gets done by, about it. How, how do we actually stop that from happening in the future? So, so where we're actually finding ourselves at the moment is that on the SOEs is that a lot of work and repair is being done, but it's just proving too slow. And, and we're all cognizant of the fact that there are big, heavy ships to turn around, but it's just proving too slow to actually put in place the necessary, and I'll use the word transformation here, in the broadest possible sense of these uh, state-owned entities into productive, high-level um, institutions that can actually provide 
electricity for all, water for all. And particularly, though, for businesses, we can't say we've now placed the business sector front and foremost in the State of the Nation Address for Economic Growth and Job Creation, but we don't provide them with enough electricity to produce the goods they need to sell or enough water, you know, particularly for the mines or obviously um, our terrible um, problems we have in the logistical system with the rails and ports, all of those need to be addressed as well. Otherwise, we can't say, well, look, you know, we provided the business sector with a couple of the things they asked for. They still failed to provide, provide a stronger growth and, and, and employment. Well, you know, we just give up now. What must we do? That, that's not how it works. <laughs> you know, you can't expect a manufacturer to be a massive exporter if he can't get the goods out the country, for example, or just produce them. Yeah. Davi, your take, especially because, you know, back in the day yeah. when we talked about uh, state-owned enterprises and the like, there's always been that feeling that these are mismanaged institutions and all of that. But this time around, it's not conjecture, simply because it's coming on, off the back um, of the fact, it's coming against the backdrop, rather, that we've got Zondo Commission reports that are coming out, actually giving evidence to say that it's no longer something that we say. We literally have an investigation that's being conducted, and slowly we see reports coming out showing <laughs> what's going on. So, your take just around uh, the state owned enterprises? Yeah, I think the important word here is slowly, <laughs> because things are happening far too slowly. Things must be happening quite much faster. Okay, just a few comments. And then, um, uh, well, we know the ESCOM is going to get more money. I was actually surprised to not pick up too much for the other state-owned enterprises. But keep in mind, there's a contingency reserve of $10 billion, which may be used for that eventually. Um, I, there will be more, because a very good example is the land bank. The land bank currently is in default. And the land bank is really crucially important to the agricultural sector. So I think the land bank will eventually get at least part of this 10 billion. And also keep in mind that I think that the overrun is going to be more than 182 billion, what the minister indicated. I think it could be closer to about 200 billion. So with a bit of luck, there could be an additional 70 billion or so that can be used for something else. I think we're going to see a year more, more support for the state-owned enterprises over the next couple of months. But without a doubt, there has been a shift in sentiment in that they're putting much more pressure on the state-owned enterprises to wash their own faces. But maybe just as a bit of a, a naughty take on certain things, and this is a very ugly word, and that's the word privatization. Do you realize that for the past, say, 10, 20 years, we've gone on this massive and dramatic privatization uh, project, we've gone, we've, we've, and we've been very, very successful to privatize so many institutions in South Africa? Unfortunately, in most cases, the state did not get money for that. And let me give you one or two examples. A good one is the post office. The post office has basically been privatized because the post, post office is not delivering parcels anymore because they can't do that. The private sector is doing that. So we've privatized the post office. The only difference is that the state didn't get money for that. And there are many other examples. Transnet is another example. The private sector, everything moved, moved to the roads. The only difference is that the, the state didn't get money for privatizing um, the, the railroads, as an example. The South African Airways, that's another good example. Um, in the 1980s, basically 100% of, um, of our local flights in South Africa was conducted by South African Airways. Today, it's zero. It's nothing. We've privatized the airlines in South Africa. The state didn't get any money for that. The same actually goes for the police as well. There are three and a half times as many police, the private sector um, uh, security people than police. We've even privatized the police. So what the point I want to make, what on earth is going on with this government that they're privatizing everything, but without getting money for that? 
So, so maybe, maybe we should put this debate back on the table. We need to private, we need to close stuff down and we need to sell it to the private sector because it is happening in any of it. No, it certainly is. And I think just depending on which way you, you, you lean, some people might take it to say that, um, you know, what was happening, the inability of, uh, you know, state enterprises to deliver certain services left open certain pieces of the market for private players to then come in and just, you know, take up, <laughs> you know, take up, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, but, but in essence, at the end of the day, you know, whichever way you look at it, the end result is exactly like what you said, that it's now private individuals that dominate, you know, um, exactly. some of these sectors without the state reaping. Perhaps they, they do get something in terms of taxes, but as as institutions, they aren't getting, you know, um, what they're really meant to get. As we end off the discussion uh, with both of you, uh, Davi and Annabelle, I wanted to just zoom out a bit, you know, simply because when we think about the budget, you sort of, uh, you know, put on your blinders and you just look at it within the context of, okay, this is where South Africa is, this is where South Africa needs to go. But Annabelle actually mentioned earlier on the fact that all of this stuff is happening, you know, with Ukraine and Russia, all of this stuff happening yeah. in the background. Uh, so maybe that's where we can end off today's discussion to talk about those extraneous circumstances that are going on around us, right? Because there's always that tension in the South African economy to say, what's what's actually going to push the RAND? What's going to push fixed income yeah. markets, equity markets? Is it really going to be the pronouncements of the finance minister on Wednesday or sort of more, um, you know, when the U U.S. Fed says, okay, we're now on a high interest rate hiking cycle. So, you know, just your takes um, on uh, both of that. Um, I think, Davi, I'll start with you and then Annabelle will give okay. you the last word. Well, yes. Now we've got a budget, we've got our own policies and so on, but the reality is we've got a small open economy, whatever happens internationally is going to affect us and there are many potential obstacles internationally, tighter monetary policy internationally, a weaker commodity cycle, all those sort of factors can have a huge impact on South Africa. Um, now you, we are witnessing what's going on in Europe. Um, it's nothing to do with us. And it can really, I mean, and this is not all. It's quite possible that the Chinese may see this as an opportunity to start with the invasion of, of Taiwan. That's not impossible. And all of a sudden the world is, is in, a, in some major military conflict and the small guys like South Africa is certainly going to get to it. So and that, those are kind of examples when I said earlier, is that I, I broadly agree with the ministers and his estimates more or less, which is not necessarily good numbers, but there are always external factors that we simply cannot predict and that will and can have potentially a huge impact on South Africa. Something that I'm pretty sure will happen, or at least that's what it looks like at the moment, we're going to see tighter monetary policy internationally, and that usually leads to much weaker emerging market currencies. But it's even possible if the war, war continues in, in Europe and it maybe it, it gets worse, then we may even see interest rates coming down again. But whatever the case, there are many factors that are completely out of our control that can have a huge impact on things like the budget as well. And unfortunately, we don't have the reserves to fall back upon. Mm. Annabelle, your take? Yes. Hi. Look, I think, um, you know, we've had this fantastic commodity boom impact on our fiscal um, 
revenues on our trade balance, our exports, our currency. And of course, we even had twin surpluses for a few months, you know, the, the, the budget um, surplus and of course the trade surplus, which is quite unusual for South Africa. But of course, now it looks like we could well be going in a different direction. You know, today I've seen that your um, precious metals, your safe haven have have growing quite substantially. So safe haven investments, people taking their money out of riskier assets and putting them in gold and precious metals. And of course, that's a, that's a sign that there's risk off in the financial markets. The RAND has weakened quite substantially. And of course, again, that also um, indic- indicates to us that there is a risk of mood prevailing through financial markets globally. Unfortunately, markets have largely ignored yesterday's good news budget. And that's quite sad because it was a good budget, you know, from what the minister had to work with. But the reality of the situation is that the RAND and of course all other financial market indicators as well continue to be determined by global financial markets and particularly global investor financial markets, the the investors in these global financial markets, their sentiments. And if we have a look at what's happening in the Ukraine, you know, yesterday, Thursday, we saw the, um, oh, sorry, not yesterday, sorry, today, today is Thursday. If we see what's happening in the Ukraine, we can see that today Russia had offloaded significant equipment and troops at the ports. There have been troops streaming across the borders. And of course, there's been missiles raining down on the Ukraine city. This is seen as the largest attack um, in Europe by one country on another since the Second World War. And of course, you know, as Darby said, it does create worries that other countries are going to get involved. And of course, not just um, the US and the UK in terms of peacekeeping and assisting um, Ukraine um, with with repelling Russia, but also, as Darby mentioned, other parts of the world as well. I think there's even worries that this may trigger a third world war. Now, I think we need to bear in mind that, that there's no... Um, surprise that Russia is attacking Ukraine in the middle of depths of the northern hemisphere winter. You know, Russia is a massive supplier of oil and gas. Um, Of course, Europe relying very heavily on oil, gas and coal for heating and for other factors as well. So you've already seen the oil price go over $100 a barrel today. We're looking at about a 1 Rand 26 hike in the petrol price for March. It might even be 1 Rand 45 if it weren't for a bit of Rand strength early in the month. But that doesn't mean very much. You know, if we see a huge escalation over the weekend, the oil price could spike up further and the Rand weaken further. We could be seeing an even bigger petrol price increase next month. So what that means for us to answer your question is it means higher inflation, higher fuel prices, and of course, a weakening on the tax revenue front, the commodity front. It's also quite important to note as well that our manufacturers gain when our commodity um, sector does well and our mining sector does well. A lot of them are manufacturers of mineral products. And of course, there's bigger demand for electricity. So there, there are indirect effects as well. And the reason why I mention this, that there's a strong risk we may see commodity prices falling around the world because of perceptions of slower global growth, particularly if if, if the tensions in um, Eastern Europe escalate further and worsen. Although oil prices may still remain high and push up even higher because OPEC institutes these quotas to keep them supported, but also, of course, as well, because you still need oil and um, fuel to run your economies. And of course, with supply shortages already being in the system early this year, and OPEC plus keeping oil markets very tight, this is the risk we run because South Africa continues to import oil instead of exploring, extracting, and using its own oil in South Africa. No, certainly. So that's been it, you know, for this discussion. Very interesting. Uh, just uh, reviewing what happened uh, earlier in the week um, with the uh, minister. 
Enoch Gondongwana giving his maiden uh, budget uh, budget speech for the year, um, highlighting a number of different areas. Um, I think one of the things that uh, you know did stand out is the fact that uh, there is broad consensus um, that uh, it was a good news budget, just given um, what's actually you know happening on the ground. Uh, but um, you know we both we had both Annabelle and Darby just highlighting a couple of areas you know where things uh, you know where things might go awry you know if we are not uh, if we are not careful you know one of the things that uh, Darby ended off with was talking about the fact that um, there has been a you know somewhat uh, I, I won't even call it somewhat it, it, there has been a privatization of many industries you know that the government uh, could be you know making money off of um, right now but all of that has been shifted uh, towards uh, private sector private sector players whether uh, that's a sign um, of uh, unintentional privatization or just you know a lack of ability to serve and uh, you know those markets um, is one of those things that's uh, perhaps up for debate and then just also end talking about uh, the fact that South Africa is um, one of those um, economies and that is open and uh, unfortunately the external circumstances do hit us um, whenever something happens and Annabelle just giving us you know some of the consequences that we might see whether it's um, likely higher oil prices which lead to higher fuel prices and then what's actually going to happen um, you know in the interest rate environment you know over time what does all of this stuff mean for South Africa so that's been it um, um, Annabelle, Davi, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, thank you. It's a pleasure, thank you so much. Have a good weekend. This, this is Mudiwa's Mudiwa Tech. Tech. Whether it's COVID-19, whether it's uh, trying to alleviate poverty, unemployment, um, trying to deal with interest rates, it always constantly seems as if uh, policymakers are fighting against the grain, trying by all means, you know, to avert one manner of disaster, you know, after another. And right now, uh, you know, we do find ourselves at the nexus of a number of different issues, you know, such as uh, the global uh, COVID-19 COVID pandemic, which is not in any ways over yes uh, a lot more a lot more normalcy um, uh, has resumed but infections you know are still there infections are not a thing of the past um, and you know vaccinations uh, still you know are something that uh, is necessary we're seeing a lot of countries trying to relax uh, you know masking uh, regulations and you know all of that but against all of that stuff you have uh, the finance ministry national treasury you know trying to to put together a budget you know that takes into consideration all of these different factors and trying to find a way to push the country forward so certainly a good news budget you know when you look at all the things that uh, government has to be dealing with at the moment but going forward it's going to be interesting as always to see you know how the different factors actually play um, on where the country is actually going to go one of the big uh, uh, debates and discussions that's happening at the moment is the fact that South Africa you know finds itself in an election year mainly because um, of the elective conference that the ANC which is the ruling party is going to be having at the end of this year how is that going to feed into some of the decisions uh, that are being taken on the ground that affect um, the economy and against all of that stuff we've got the 
external factors, uh, the Russia-Ukraine issues. What is that going to do to, you know, oil prices and the like? Because, you know, as a base commodity, it has an impact you know, on the rest, uh, on the rest of the economy. How is, um, you know, interest rate policy? Because, like what Davi said, um, as well as Annabelle, we might see, you know, some reactions in terms of interest rates and monetary policy, um, around the world as a way to curb, uh, the effects of higher oil prices that are affecting everyone, um, you know, around the world. And what does all of that stuff have to do, you know, with the rand? Indications of, you know, lower sentiment when it comes to, um, emerging markets or what does that mean going forward and then uh, the other piece just uh, considering how South Africa um, is actually implementing some of the plans uh, that it has a lot of money has been allocated um, towards um, employment uh, particularly around infrastructure drives how is that actually going to materialize you know on the ground especially um, when we think about uh, you know all of the different pressures uh, that are on consumers right now how are the employment opportunities going to be created how sustainable would they be would they be short term would they be medium term type of solutions or will be will they be you know the type of uh, role jobs that actually carry people for the next couple of years And that's been it for this edition of the Business Day Spotlight. Remember that you can find our latest podcast on Business Live. That's under the podcast Business Day Spotlight tab on Twitter. We're hashtag BD Spotlight. And remember that you can review and subscribe for free on iono.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you choose to get your pods casted. Thank you to our amazing team. Our producer is Paige Muller. I've been Mudio Gavaza of the Business Day and Financial Mail. And this has been another edition of the Business Day Spotlight which is a multimedia live production. So for myself and the rest of the team, it is a good evening, good afternoon, and good morning.